The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. This is our continuing study in the book of 2 Corinthians, A Call to Church Action, Part 20. Our text is 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9. Our title today, The Example of Stewardship. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Will you turn with me to 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, and our portion for consideration this morning, those first nine verses. Today we resume our studies in this second epistle under the general title, God's Call to Church Action. And those of you who've been following so faithfully these studies will remember that we've just completed the first seven chapters under the title, God's Call to Christian Fellowship. That is an aspect of church action, live radiant, relevant fellowship. Now we come to the second division of the book, chapters 8 and 9, God's call to church action, but this time Christian stewardship. By and by we shall be dealing with chapters 10 through to the end under the title God's call to church action, the burden being Christian leadership. Now this matter of Christian fellowship has been thoroughly dealt with. In fact, I know no passage in the Word of God that deals with a subject not so much in terms of the word fellowship as in terms of the true meaning and character of fellowship. But now Paul turns to an equally important subject, Christian stewardship. And no individual believer or local church can understand anything of Christian fellowship without being involved in Christian stewardship. Christian stewardship is not a subject that's tacked on, as it were, to our gospel. It is at the very heart of our gospel. In fact, one of the greatest demonstrations of that fact is in the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, where having lifted his readers to the highest heaven in the greatest exposition of the truth of the doctrine of the resurrection, and having climaxed that argument of his with the words, Thanks be unto God, which always gives us the victory. Which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He moves right on and says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, and without a break, and the original goes right on and says, and now concerning the collection. Now Paul picks up that theme and deals with it here in these two chapters, 8 and 9. And if we're to understand the central meaning of this epistle, which is reconciliation through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we know anything of the word of reconciliation, we must also know the work of reconciliation. There's something more than just the proclamation. There is the performance of what is known as reconciliation. And part of that performance is this question of Christian stewardship. You'll go very far, but you won't find anything in Scripture from Genesis through Revelation, which is more extensive and exhaustive on the doctrine of the grace of giving as in these two chapters, 8 and 9. And it's significant to find where these chapters are positioned and the whole sweep and scope of them. And I'm going to tell you my heart's been challenged afresh. I cannot be an honest Christian. I cannot be a devout student of the Word of God. 
I cannot act not just on emotional impulses, but on convictional, convictional determination without taking these two chapters very seriously. And so this morning, we're going to open a series of studies entitled Christian Stewardship, covering chapters 8 and 9 of Corinthians. And this call to church action, you'll notice, is divided into four very wonderful sections. And we'll deal with these in order. Today, the example of stewardship, chapter 8, 1 through 9. God willing, next Sunday, the ethics of stewardship, chapter 8, verses 10 through 15. The following Sunday, the efficiency of stewardship, chapter 8, 16 through 9, 5. And finally, the enrichment of stewardship, chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. So with anointed minds and hearts and wills, let us proceed to examine this fourfold division of our theme. This morning then, the example of stewardship. First nine verses. I want you to notice from the very beginning that Paul's conception of giving is a very lofty one. To him, giving is a grace, a ministry of personal experience. This is something God-given. And if a man hasn't a sense of Christian stewardship, then he's defective somewhere. He doesn't know the indwelling fullness and anointing of the Holy Spirit. For this is a grace. Giving, says Paul, is a grace. A grace bestowed by God. A grace bestowed by the Holy Ghost. It isn't something I react against. It isn't I, something I quarrel about. It isn't something I shrink from when it's mentioned from the pulpit. It isn't something I grumble about. It's something I open my heart to receive. It's a grace, a grace in the Holy Ghost. When Paul planted churches, he made it his business to instruct the people of God anywhere and everywhere on this doctrine of stewardship. As a consequence, the churches in Macedonia, such as Thessalonica, Berea, and particularly Philippi, were renowned for their charity and liberality. In the passage now before us, the Apostle Paul brings this fact to the attention of the Corinthians and concludes the paragraph with a supreme example of the self-giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, as we shall observe in more detail in a moment, if you want to know whether or not giving comes from heaven, if you want to know whether or not giving is the grace of God himself, then behold the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. Apparently, if you notice, please, in verse 7, this particular church, this local church at Corinth, abounded in such gifts as faith and utterance and knowledge and all diligence. We won't wait to elaborate on those, but there were gifts, distinctive gifts of the Holy Spirit. But Paul adds, they lacked the grace of giving. They lacked the grace of giving. Faith, they had tremendous faith. Utterance, it was one of the greatest churches for eloquent preaching. They went absolutely crazy over Apollos, the silver-tongued preacher. Diligence, they were always at it. Knowledge, why? They reflected in some way the very philosophical understanding of reality transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they exalted knowledge. They were an informed church, but there was one serious defect. It was the grace of giving. And so Paul brings them 
into confrontation with two outstanding examples in order to stir in them a sense of responsibility and accountability in this matter of Christian stewardship. And this is our burden for this morning. Let us look at the examples and learn the lessons that God would teach us. Example number one, the example of human giving. Verse one, moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now, the New English Bible makes this a little clearer by rendering the text as follows. Read your authorized version as I read the New English Bible here. We must tell you, friends, about the grace of generosity which God has imparted to our congregations in Macedonia. Yes, Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, and other churches. As Paul has indicated already in his first letter to the Corinthians, the occasion of this interchurch money-raising program was necessitated because of the poverty which had stricken the mother church at Jerusalem. Through persecution and privation, they had come in desperate need of aid from outside. And the churches in Macedonia had heard about this and they had risen nobly to the challenge. In fact, they completely overwhelmed the Apostle Paul. He couldn't, he couldn't just fathom it all. The sense of surprise comes in the original again and again in the verses of these two chapters. He was so overwhelmed by the generosity of the churches in Macedonia. Now, says Paul, addressing the Corinthians, you do likewise. You do likewise. Then he proceeds to describe in detail the examples of this giving on the part of the Macedonians. And our procedure this morning is to take those three characteristics, show them in terms of the churches at Macedonia, that's the human example. Then take those three characteristics and apply them to our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and see the divine example. Here is the first one. It was sacrificial giving. Notice again verse 1. Sacrificial giving. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that? Verse 2. In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. That's an astonishing verse. Paul takes great care to show that it was not in circumstances of prosperity that the saints in Macedonia gave their liberal offering. Oh no, oh no, look at the text again. Some severe test of affliction had come upon those churches, every one of them, and they'd been reduced to what Paul calls, notice, deep poverty, or as the Greek has it, down to the bottom poverty. Down to the bottom poverty. Here were churches that were as poor as the very church at Jerusalem. They'd passed through privation and persecution themselves. They'd been reduced to poverty and even more than poverty, down to the bottom poverty. And yet, says Paul, out of that poverty, out of that poverty, out of that affliction, they gave liberally. This is true sacrifice. And they had learned it. And they had learned it from only one person. And that is their matchless Savior, who for the joy that was set before them, before him, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, the sacrifice of the Savior, reflected in the sacrifice of the Macedonian churches. Dr. Roy Lauren tells of a Christian businessman who was traveling in Korea 
One day he saw on the field by the side of the road a young man pulling a plow while an older man walked behind holding the handles of that plow. The businessman was amused and he asked the car in which he was traveling to be stopped and he picked up his camera and he took a snapshot. That's a curious picture, he said. I suppose these people are very poor. I've never seen anything quite like this. His remarks were addressed to the missionary who was driving and acting also as an interpreter and guide. Yes, was the quiet reply. Those two men happened to be Christians. When their church was being built, they were eager to give something in order that they might have a share in the erection of the church to worship God. But they had no money. They were very poor. So father and son talked about it and they decided that they would sell their one and only ox and give the money to the church. And said the missionary to this American, that's why the young man is pulling the plow and the old man's holding the handles. The businessman was silent for a few moments, then he said, my, he said, that must have been a terrific sacrifice, a tremendous sacrifice. Back came the missionary. They didn't call it that. They thought it was rather fortunate that they had an ox to sell. Needless to say, the businessman had nothing more to say. But when he reached home, he took the picture to his pastor and told him all about it. And then he added, I want to double my giving to the church, pastor, and do some plow work. For after that experience, I realize I've never, never really sacrificed. It was sacrificial giving on the part of these Macedonians. Sacrificial giving. But notice again... My second point, it was spontaneous giving. Spontaneous giving. Verses 3 and 4. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. The scriptures make it clear that the grace of giving is not so much the result of outward compulsion as the consequence of inward expulsion. In other words the expulsion of a new affection. And I want to say this, my friends, that no one has learned the true character of giving if it doesn't well up, if it doesn't well up from the innermost being, just like the flood tide of the Spirit in released living waters. He that believeth into me, said Jesus, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water, and part of that flow is giving. Thus Paul admits in verse 8, notice that he had no authority to demand offerings from the Corinthian saints, but he could certainly afford them the opportunity, notice carefully, to prove the sincerity of their love. Underscore that in your Bible. Verse 8, to prove the sincerity of your love. Paul said to them, if you don't want to give, I can't force you. I have no mandate from heaven to bend your will against your own deliberate determination and decision. Indeed, God can't do that in heaven. God can't make me believe in his son. God can't make me a servant of the cross. God can't make me a giver of gifts. He can show me through his word. He can woo me by his spirit. But ultimately, I have to respond. And it must be spontaneous. It was to prove the sincerity of their love. The example he holds up is the giving of these Macedonians who sacrificed even beyond their power. Verse 3. And the secret is very simple. Notice, verse 3 again, they gave of their own free will. That's the literal translation of the words you read in your Bible which go like this. 
They were willing of themselves. Literally is, they gave of their own free will. Spontaneous giving. What is more, they took the initiative to beseech Paul with much entreaty. Will you notice that? That he would receive their gifts as a token of their fellowship with the saints at Jerusalem. This is where Paul was utterly overwhelmed. These Christians besought him. The word entreat is very strong there. Besought him, entreated him to receive the gifts beyond their power of their own free will. Thus we see that spontaneous giving is not careless giving. Rather it is the giving that is prompted by the Spirit of God and guided by the Word of God. What an example are these dear saints of Macedonia to our church today. Would to God that we knew something of the sacrifice and spontaneity of such giving. I say would to God that we knew this. It is one of the evidences of Holy Ghost revival. Have you ever read the stories of revival? Have you? Have you ever done any research into revival? Are you longing that the latter rain should fall before the husbandman come, comes for the precious fruit of the earth? Are you really longing for revival before the husbandman comes for the precious fruit of the earth? Are you? Well, I'm going to tell you something. When you experience revival, you'll have to give. Because this has always been characteristic of times of revival. Giving, giving. Just like that opening day of the church's history, the day of Pentecost and the subsequent days and weeks when they poured into a common fund so that nobody would lack anything. But there's something more here in our text and I want you to follow it. Not only was it sacrificial giving, not only spontaneous giving, but spiritual giving. And verse 5 is a verse I've pondered long over this past week. Look at it again. And this they did, not as we hoped, though we had great hopes, says Paul, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Here are words which reveal to us the fact that their giving was the outward expression of utter dedication to God. Or as someone has put it, the crowning point of their generosity was their complete self-surrender. Now let me point out that there is a kind of giving which is unspiritual. And I want you to observe this before we go any further. There is a kind of giving which is unspiritual. It has ulterior motives. One form of it is to draw attention to oneself. Such a motive the Lord Jesus roundly condemned in his Sermon on the Mount when he said, When thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret. What our Savior was saying was simply this. Don't follow the example of these Pharisees and scribes who stand on street corners and blow their trumpets until everybody is paying attention and then say, I'm about to give a gift to the temple. Follow me and see what I cast into the offering. No, says our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an ulterior motive. That's ostentation. And he roundly condemns it. Another form of unspiritual giving is to bring our offerings to God with a spirit of ill will or reluctance. This, of course, runs contrary to the apostolic injunction to give with purpose of heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. Why? Because God loveth a cheerful giver. Now, it's a strange thing. But I doubt in the Christian church if there's any subject on which people curl up more and resent more and recoil more than on the subject of giving. You can preach out all the sins of the saints and a church will sit back and take it. But mention the matter of giving and you're, you're meddling, you're interfering. 
And it seems to me that this is because of that deep sense of reluctance to part with that which God not only demands in terms of the tithe, but deserves in terms of the offering. Tithes and offerings. Tithes being that basic amount to which I'm committed by the very law of God and I can do no less under grace. Offerings over and above the basic amount. God demands, God deserves, and there must be no reluctance. Why? Because God loveth a cheerful giver. There is an aspect of God's love which we don't enjoy if we don't give. But the worst form of giving, of course, is that of attempting to buy off one's indebtedness to God. When we look up to heaven and say, Oh God, don't you see what we've given? Look what I've given. I know nobody else knows about it, but you do. It's tremendous, isn't it, Lord? And there's a sense of buying off our indebtedness to God. How different was the spirit of the Macedonians? Not only was their giving unostentatious, but it was joyous and generous. It was accomplished with an act of complete self-surrender. Notice that. The construction of the verse before us indicates that the giving of themselves to the Lord and to the apostle was not their initial commitment, not their initial act of commitment, but something extra. The original has the thought here that this isn't the first time they dedicated themselves to the Lord. They'd done this already, or else they would not be in such a spirit and grace of giving. But seeing the need, they said, yes, we're going to give to the Lord, but lest it should be a paying off of our obligation, which is so easy to do. Yes, it's the easiest thing in the world for some people to write out a check and so salve their conscience. No, no, no. They said, we'll give ourselves first of all, and unless we are totally yielded ourselves, then our gift means nothing. And they gave themselves to the Lord. The word first is not to be used here in a temporal sense, but rather in the idea, the concept of prior claim. They first gave their own selves to the Lord, and unto us by the will of God, says Paul. This means that they not only dedicated themselves to the Lord themselves, but they said, Lord, here is my spirit, soul, and body. But more than that, Lord, I want to be available here upon earth. And if the apostle should call upon us to do anything, we want him to know that we are available. I'm available. I wonder how many of us know anything of that kind of giving. For I want to tell you that is spiritual giving. Spiritual giving. Once again, we exclaim what an example of human giving is depicted for us in these verses. And if we would ask any further question as to their secret, surely the answer is simply this. The manner of their giving was the measure of their love to Jesus Christ. I want to say that again. The manner of their giving was the measure of their love to Jesus Christ. It is said that when the British government sought to reward General Gordon for his brilliant services in China, he declined money. He declined all honors and all titles, but he did accept a gold medal inscribed with a record of his 33 engagements. It was his most prized possession. But after his death, the medal couldn't be found. And loved ones looked throughout his possessions and still that medal couldn't be found, the most precious thing ever given him. And the most prized possession he himself acknowledged and recognized. They couldn't find it. But after some in investigation, eventually it was learned that he had sent it to Manchester City during a severe famine with the instructions that that medal should be melted down, sold, and the money given to the poor. 
And under the date of its sending were these words which I've jotted down here. The last earthly thing, the last earthly thing I had in this world that I valued above everything I have given to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's giving. That's the example of giving. Sacrificial, spontaneous, spiritual. But now, says Paul, you haven't learnt everything yet. I have something else to share with you. Alongside of the human example of giving, we have the divine example of giving. And that's our closing verse. For in verse 9 he says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. In this one all-embracing and matchless sentence, Paul shows that the Holy Spirit who prompted the Macedonians in their giving was the same eternal spirit who energized our master Christ as man to yield himself up to God without spot. In other words, Christ's giving of himself was sacrificial. Christ's giving of himself was spontaneous. Christ's giving of himself was spiritual. Look at those three points again as applied to our Savior. Christ's giving was sacrificial. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. The tense of the verb suggests that the fact of the incarnation, rather than the conditions under which he lived those three and a half years of his ministry, or indeed those 33 and a half years of his life, was uppermost in the apostle's mind. To the apostle, Christ became poor in the very fact and act of becoming man. He just couldn't get over the condescension and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ who became man, who contracted to the measure of a woman's womb to be born, who stepped into the stream of human history at its lowest ebb. He couldn't get over it. This to him was supremely sacrifice. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, he says. God manifest in the flesh. To think of him as rich in power, yet humbly submitting himself to human weakness. Rich in glory, yet willingly laying aside that effulgence for the likeness of men. Rich in wisdom, yet submitting his mind utterly and completely to his father so that he would never think independently of his father. Not my will, but thine be done. Rich in resources, yet having no room at his birth, no home during his earthly life, no grave at his death. Finally, after the most perfect life of goodness and giving, we see him dying upon a cruel cross for the redemption of the human race. To Paul and to all who have any sensibilities at all, this is grace, this is unmerited favor, this is unbounded kindness, this is sacrifice in giving at its loftiest and its best. Who can think of such sacrifice as this without exclaiming, Oh, matchless grace, that Jesus there alone on Calvary's cross for sinners did atone to such a friend, our Savior and our King, our lives for service we would gladly bring. His giving was sacrificial. But more than that, his giving was spontaneous. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. It was he who took the initiative. 
It was out of his love, his joy, his grace that he came. No one compelled him. This is why his self-giving was so precious to the Father. This is why his self-giving was so precious to the Holy Spirit. Paul argues this spontaneity of giving in that matchless chapter in Romans 10, 6-7 when he says, The word of righteousness speaketh on this wise. Who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the depths? That is to bring Christ up again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee even in thy mouth. That if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. No man ever went up into heaven to bring Christ down. No one went into the depths of death, that is, to bring him up from the dead. His coming from heaven and his rising from the dead were all of Jesus Christ. He took the initiative. It was ever and always out of his own heart. In other words, whether it's the condescending grace of the incarnation or the conquering grace of the resurrection, it's all of Christ. He took the initiative. It was his love, his joy, his grace, his initiative. It was spontaneous. This is heaven's standard of giving. And there is no substitute for it. No man merits a thing. Why? Because it's all of grace. Unmerited favor from beginning to end. He takes the initiative. He follows through. He consummates his work of redemption. Look at that, says Paul. Look at that. Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. But finally notice that Christ's giving was spiritual. He became poor that ye through his poverty might be rich. It was entirely selfless and with one objective only, that of enriching others. This is spiritual giving. If you ever want to test whether or not your giving is spiritual, always ask to what end, to what object, for what purpose are you giving? Is it to bring satisfaction to your own heart, wonderful as that satisfaction is when God says, thank you, my child, I love a cheerful giver. But supremely, what is the object? What is the motive? To what purpose? Is it for the enrichment of others? Is it for the outreach of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is it for lifting up broken humanity? Is it for making known the unsearchable riches of Christ overseas through his missionaries? Perhaps a story will illustrate what I mean by enriching others. In the days of the American Revolutionary War, there lived in Pennsylvania a Baptist pastor by the name of the Reverend Peter Miller, who enjoyed the personal friendship of General Washington. But in that same town there lived one man by the name of Michael Whitman, an evil-minded man who did all in his power to abuse and oppose the pastor. One day Michael Whitman was involved in treason and was arrested and sentenced to death. The old preacher started out on foot and walked no less than 70 miles on foot to Washington and requested to see General Washington. When he got to Philadelphia, he was ushered into the presence of the great general, and without any beating around the bush, he begged for the life of the traitor. No, said Washington, I cannot grant a pardon. I cannot grant a pardon for your friend. My friend, cried Peter Miller, he is my sworn enemy. He's done everything to oppose me, to abuse me, even to the taking of my life. My friend, he's my enemy. Yet I want his life. I want his life. Save his life. What, cried Washington, you have walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts the matter in a different light. I will grant the pardon. And he did. And 
Peter Miller took Michael Whitman from the very shadow of death back to his own home, no longer an enemy, but a friend forever. This is what Jesus did for you and me in his self-giving. He had no other interest than your salvation and mine, your enrichment and mine. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends, but he didn't lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for his enemies. Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. What shall we say to such teaching? We have seen the highest example of giving and the gracious self-giving of our Savior. We've observed the same spirit of sacrifice, spontaneity, and spirituality in the giving of the Macedonians. Can we do anything less? Can I do anything less? Can you do anything less? A thousand times no. With all our spiritual blessings and material benefits, we are committed to such giving without reserves and without regrets. All I want is a quiet hour in the presence of my Lord. All you need is the same when preaching has been silenced, when the congregation is no longer before us, where there's no sense of acting or appearing to perform before others. It's stripped there in the silence of his presence we sing again quietly to ourselves, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let us pray. One quiet moment in God's presence for those listening over radio, for those of our own congregation here. I have sought in all the simplicity of a Bible exposition and application to confront my heart afresh and yours with that which is expected of us if we're truly Christian. Not just fellowship, but stewardship of time and energy and money and dedication for one of the greatest moments of opportunity in all history. A moment that's coming and going, and we can never redeem it. And I'm asking you, my friend, are you prepared to answer the call of God for sacrificial, spontaneous, and spiritual giving? First, of yourselves, and then, of your substance. Seal home to our hearts, dear Lord, thine own word, and grant that out of a deep sense of being taught by the Scriptures and by the Spirit, we shall be not just hearers, but doers. And that we shall be blessed in our doing. We ask it for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources, or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.